0: Hi, you're listening to the RVC Podcast, a ministry of River Valley Church in Fresno, California. It's Revelation chapter 2. This morning, we're just looking at verse 12 through 17. And so let's read it together and let's hear what Jesus has to say to not only this church, but the churches in their community, as well as all of us who are believers in churches in the 21st century. God has given us these letters to assess where the church's true spiritual condition was and given us the ability to hear what his spirit is saying and to make adjustments in our life that we might live lives that glorify him. And so here he says in verse 12, and to the angel or the, the leader, the messenger of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith or your faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat foods, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality." So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that nobody knows except the one who receives it so the church in pergamum was uh, another church out of the seven churches that certainly was a real church there in pergamum and uh, and then there were surrounding churches and these letters were to be passed on and certainly to the church throughout the ages we've learned from these these uh, letters that the lord wrote to these churches so that we might gain some understanding of what does it mean to walk with god and what is he actually looking for in our lives In this city, they had a lot of wealth. This was a city that had the first temple dedicated to Caesar. So Caesar worship was a part of the Roman community where they would actually burn incense to Caesar. And people would declare Caesar uh, is Lord. There were certainly many temples devoted to idol worship. And in the midst of this city was this church with the challenge of living in the world without the world and all its philosophies living in them. We learn in, uh, throughout the New Testament we can see, even in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all the different men and women of faith and what they went through for that faith. And many of them gave up their lives because their belief and their faith in God. And one of the, one of the characteristics that, uh, that the writer of Hebrews describes them as, he says, they live their lives as strangers in this world and pilgrims in this world or sojourners in this world. And the, the mental picture for the Christian is this, that we're passing through this world. We're heading towards our eternal home. And you and I are, are living lives that really are counterculture to the philosophy and this world system that's all around us. And sometimes it causes persecution, as we read about last week, the church of, of uh, Smyrna. And certainly we talked about the, 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 um, the persecution that's even happening in our day and age in the 21st century towards Christians. He said, you see your life as a pilgrim. See, they're in the world. We're in this world, but we're not supposed to be of this world. This church that Jesus wrote to, they settled down with the world, so to speak. Now, each letter begins with a description of Jesus and a description in Revelation chapter 1. There were different descriptions of who he was, the character that Jesus is, and, uh, and, and then it always ends with a promise, each letter does. And so this one begins with a description of Jesus, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And all those descriptions that we read about, last week Jesus began the letter to the church of Smyrna that had no criticisms toward the church because they were a church that were persecuted. His only uh, admonition to them was, uh, stop being fearful and be faithful to me even unto death. And he described himself as the one who was alive and dead and alive again, describing that he went to the cross and suffered for humanity, giving them that understanding that he identifies the suffering they were going through. This letter begins with this this idea that Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword, the one with the two-edged sword. And it's a reference to his authority, but also a reference to the word of God. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is alive and powerful, Listen how cool this description of God's word is. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. That word, his word, it does separate between, you know, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, this idea... That, that it exposes what's going on in our lives. It reveals the true nature and condition of our own hearts, but also points the way to salvation and those who reject him. It comes as judgment, as Jesus said, even to this church, I will come and judge. His word exposes the true spiritual condition, but also points the way to life. Now, as we've been talking in these letters, we've we've looked at two ways of seeing the letter, really two things that are brought up. Number one, Jesus' assessment to the church but also his admonishment to the church. So beginning with number one, what does Jesus say about this church? He says he knows how difficult the environment is that they were living in. Two times he mentions, it's where Satan's thrown in. And I know what you're thinking. You thought that was Las Vegas. It was actually right here, right in Pergamum. You might feel like, can you imagine like, You're like, man, it's so difficult walking with God in my community. It just feels like that there's something opposing me. And then you get a letter from Jesus saying, oh, by the way, that's where Satan's throne is. He's operating this this unseen spiritual world that is constantly combating uh, the, the, the Christian life and the gospel message. If you've ever felt like, man, I really want to live for God, and you felt some sort of invisible pushback, you got to know that the the scripture tells us that that, uh, we're walking in this world, but there's this unseen spiritual realm that's around us that certainly causes opposition. Even Peter says that, be careful, be alert, for your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, guys, I know how difficult it is to live for me there in your community, That reference to Satan's throne, it could be a reference to the great temple that was dedicated to Zeus or also the temple dedicated to Caesar himself. Behind the scene idolatry, though, was this unseen spiritual world all being orchestrated by Satan. He gave them praise or uh, commendation from the Lord. He says, you've held on to my name and you've never denied me. They never denied his deity nor their personal faith in him. And he said, even in times of persecution, you actually did not deny my name. You held fast to my name. And he described a real person in their community, in their church, that actually gave up his life, Antipas. But here comes the criticism in verse 15 and 16. The criticism from the Lord. He says that you're allowing compromise to come in. And when compromise comes in the church, it pollutes the entire body. How did they allow compromise? What was he talking about? Well, in Ephesians, the letter to the church of Ephesus we read in uh, chapter two, verse one through seven, it, it was that the, the Lord praised them because they didn't tolerate wickedness, right? They, they called sin, sin in their community and they called it out, but they also rejected, he said, the, the, uh, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So what Ephesus was rejecting the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and we'll get to what those guys represented in a second. Now it has become teaching, in verse sixteen, something that they actually receive as doctrine, and and allow to invade and infiltrate that church. Now, instead of rejecting it, in this church we see that they're embracing it. And he mentions two things: the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So. Balaam, we learn a little bit from this passage, right? But you can read about uh, the story of Balak and Balaam. Balaam was this, uh, this this prophet of God, but he was kind of like a, 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 a wayward prophet, if you would. He would hire himself out, and Balak sent word to him and saying, listen, there's this group, there's this nation who uh, it seems like has a lot of like hand of God on their life, and I want to hire you to come and curse them. And so, you know, Balaam's like, you know, no, the Lord had warned him, don't go, don't go. Balaam's just like, you know what, I can't go. They send back, okay, I'll go. And then remember, you know, Balaam has this conversation with his donkey because his donkey's like trying to like avoid going to this, you know, where he's going to go and he's going to, you know, be tempted to dishonor God. And then the donkey speaks up and then he talks to the donkey. I don't know what's crazier, the idea that a donkey talked in the Bible or that he actually responded back to the donkey. He's like, well, I should kill you. That's what he tells his donkey. Instead of going like, hold up. I got to get this on video. I can't believe my donkey's talking right now. And what happened was, is that when he went to go curse the people of God, the children of Israel, instead of a curse, he spoke a blessing. And Balaam's like, time, 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 time. Listen, stop blessing them. I paid you to curse them. And there's this incredible word that was spoken by by Balaam. He says, "Whom can curse whom God has not cursed? I can't curse." A group of people, the nation of Israel, if God himself has not cursed them. So what we find is that Balaam sort of gave him some inside information saying, here's the deal. You're not going to be able to curse this nation because God's hand of blessing upon them. You're going to have to find a devious way to actually get them to dishonor their God and thus their God will discipline them. And so he says, you need to make friends with the children of Israel. And what ended up happening was they began to, um, the, the, the men of Israel began to intermarry and connect with, uh, with the women of Moab and the Midianites. And this wasn't an issue of actually intermarriage between races. God never has anything to say about intermarriage with races, by the way. But it was about spiritual intermarrying. It was about they will lead you away from God. And that's exactly what happened as they, as described in the letter, they began to eat meats sacrificed to idols and they began to commit sexual immorality. And those were all part of their feasts. Those were all part of their sort of idol celebrations, if you would. And they fell right into the devil's trap as they began to incorporate attending these feasts to other God, and what happened was that it turned their hearts of those people who, who joined those gatherings away from the Lord, and God judged them, and some of them lost their lives, and that's what compromise does in a church community, and that's what compromise does in the life of a Christian, as these Christians now, who held on to the name of God, right, they never denied Jesus, nor their faith in him, but they began to blend their lives, this, this mixed marriage, like the name of the city even infers. As they began to join their lives and their version of Christianity began to shift and change, as they began to add paganism and other kinds of things, eating meats that were sacri- you know, they It wasn't an issue that they bought some meat from the butcher. You, know, you go to Save Mart, you go to Costco, you say, hey man, are you guys like worshiping anyone other than Jesus? Well, I'm not going to buy this steak. Well, yes, you are, because it's 679 right now. Like seasoned meat right now. I'm just letting you know that was for free. six seventy nine dollars a pound. Incredible tri-tip. Hey, I don't care who you're worshiping back there, but can you make this into a, a double pack? That's what I'll tell them. The idea, though, was that they were worshiping these idols. They were... Giving into this, this um, you know, I love Jesus, but man, I'm going to allow this worldliness, if you would, to come into our life and be a part of our Christianity. And God says, this is what I have against you. You have bought in, some of you who are buying into the teachings of Balaam, encouraging the worship of false gods and immorality, which are all part of these pagan festivals. And some Christians refuse to participate They suffered persecution, and in some some ways, scholars believe that they begin to say, you know what, let's not make a big deal about this, because we don't want to suffer. And a lot of times, it's easy to sort of go with the current and flow of society, rather than to swim against it, because you just don't want to stand out and say, well, this is what I believe. Oh, why would you believe that? You know what, on second thought, I don't really believe that. Here the Lord says, I have this against you. You have compromised allowing this teaching, which is blended Christianity with the systems of this world, whatever it would look like, it's not biblical Christianity. And so some, because they refused, some would refuse to actually put incense towards Caesar. Some refused to go and participate in some of the, you know, idolatry and the worship in other temples, which would include all kinds of immorality. They suffered social Persecution, economic persecution, and some physical, even as Antipas, it says, he himself gave up his life as he stood for the Lord. But the rebuke wasn't just for those who compromised, but for those who stood by in their church and said nothing. Those who actually allowed it to go on and remain without protest. Let's swim with the current of the day and culture. That's easy for a Christian to do. You don't want to stand out. If you stand for righteousness in a world that calls darkness light and light darkness, you may suffer a little bit because you hold to that standard of God's word. You and I cannot legislate morality out there. We cannot, you know, go and say like, hey, you people who don't know God, you should be living like you know God. Like that's like ridiculous. You and I shouldn't hold people to a standard of what God calls a believer to live like If they're not a believer, what he's dealing with is inside here. This was not about, um, you know, boys. sinners are not welcome in the church of Pergamum. This was about Christians and leaders that were actually living like they were back in the world and they believed and actually put God's stamp of approval upon it. And then he mentions the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The teaching of the Nicolaitans, we talked about two weeks back. You could check it out on our podcast to the letter of the church of, of, of uh, Ephesus. But the idea is the, the word literally means, uh, it's a combination of words, to lord it over another or to conquer the people is literally what the, the word Nicolaitans mean. Some believe that it could have been... Uh, there was a, a, um, a deacon that was appointed a deacon in the early church in the first section of the book of Acts and some believe that it was, he himself was actually the leader of this and the, and the kind of the proponent of this teaching and the idea was this hierarchy spiritually that, that created this idea that, that you know, uh, you need me to go to God and we talked about that when we dealt with the church of, of Ephesus like, you know, like oh you need to come to a pastor and tell him what you want God to do and then he'll go and talk to you or a priest or some other person Jesus died on the cross to remove every human hierarchy that there was so that every professing believer can actually access God like there's nothing special about my prayers for you or your prayers for me every person has direct access to God isn't that great news no wonder God hates that teaching because it was this spiritual overload like like hey I've got something on you and I'm going to be in control of your life it gets pretty disgusting when you look at how it, how it fleshes out in church communities, even in the 21st century. But he says that you hold to the teachings of Balaam, the holding the teachings of the Nicolaitans, who, by the way, they also approved of immorality. And it was this infusion of paganism and Christianity. You see, it's a big deal with God. It's a big deal with God. How many of you guys are married here today? Just raise your hand. Do it like with authority. Yeah, I'm married. Right? <clears throat> it's a big deal for you that that your spouse is the only legitimate source of intimacy. Can we all affirm that right now? Like you marry people, who are like, yeah, heck yeah. Like heads are gonna roll if it's anything different, right? Whatever that intimacy might be, it might be emotional intimacy. It's like no control, alt, delete, or worse is gonna happen in your life. You know what I'm saying? See, the your relationship to God. It is in that, it, that we, we see that beautiful display. This is why marriage, by the way, is such a big deal between a husband and a wife. And the two will become one, right? And they'll be fused together because it promotes this image of Christ and the church. He's the husband, we're the bride. That is the most intimate human relationship in the world. How much bigger, how much more is at stake When we talk about the church's relationship to our husband, the Lord, that's why the Bible says that you and I cannot have this mixed marriage with our Christianity, our love for God, let's simple it down, and our love for this world. You cannot mix them. They don't go together. This isn't peanut butter and chocolate that makes something wonderful It's rat poison and cake mix. And he says, I have these things against you. His criticism was the very same, by the way, that we see Paul talking to the church in Corinth about. They had some big issues with allowing sin to remain, and no one was calling it out. They allowed false teaching in and immoral living to be tolerated. Again, it's not, this isn't sinners are not welcome to the church in Corinth, this was leaders who were actually living lives of darkness, a lifestyle of darkness, it, as a matter of fact, and then saying that God was okay with it. And Paul says, guys, have you allowed it to go on that long that like nobody's calling it out, that nobody's judging it? This isn't us going out, let's judge our neighbor because they're living an unchristian life. Are they a Christian? No. Like, you and I have no business speaking into their lifestyle. We point them to Jesus Christ we point them to the way of salvation, but we don't nitpick their lives. But when all of a sudden it's believers, we say, "God, th- th- there's things that we are allowing to go on in our own personal lives that just don't mix. Compromise in the church and in our lives it always brings a mess, and it always brings discipline from the Lord because He loves us." I'd imagine they thought, "Let's just let it. Let's just let it go on for a little bit. It's not hurting anyone, right?" We don't want to stand out in this community as being intolerant or judgmental. So we're just going to sort of allow this to go on and infuse in our church. Jesus' words to the church of Smyrna was stop being fearful and be faithful. And Satan tried to stomp out the gospel and the Christian by persecution. And you know what happens when when that goes on in our world? The Christian message just explodes even more the church in smyrna the name literally was myrrh it was this perfume uh, and, and and when it would get crushed the fragrance would just you know uh, bloom and you would actually smell it even more when you look at the church throughout history the time period around 300 ad and following when it became popular to be a christian that's when the christianity got to its lowest point when they said we're gonna immerse our lives with Rome when Christianity became the, the the national religion of Rome, and church leaders were sitting on you know on uh, uh, in in leadership you know seats seats with the, the leaders in Rome, and this this blending of the church and the and the world and government was so disgusting, and so Satan's like, man, every time I kill a Christian, ten more get born again. I said, so you know what we need to do. We need to stop persecuting Christians, and we need to actually deceive them. And so there's this wonderful, that's what the doctrine of the teaching of Balaam was. You're not going to get God to curse his people, so you got to get them to actually compromise, be deceived, and allowing immorality to sneak in their lives and in their church, and all of a sudden, it will bring a disaster upon them. That was Satan's new tactic. He's the father of lies, Jesus tells us. And compromise comes in. And compromise doesn't just come in in our lives personally in giant massive doses, right? It's just a little drop here, right? It's just a little bit at a time. It doesn't hurt that much. Churches and believers face this challenge all the time. That Jesus said that you and I are living in this world, but we are not of this world. We, we are pilgrims that are passing through. James tells us that, that true and, and unadulterated um, religion before God the Father is this, right? That you and I would care for the widow and orphan in their distress, being Jesus in a broken and hurting world. And the next thing he says, and to keep oneself unstained from this world. The challenge for the Christian in this life is how do I keep my life from being unstained where there's not a scent of this world any longer in my life? The clue of how it happens is in the description of the Lord, the one who holds the two-edged sword. You and I stick with God's word. You and I allow God's word to be the final authority in our lives. This, this book, as D.L. Moody said, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. You allow God's word to be the authority, not culture, not what other you know some other person says. It, and I mean, no no matter what kind of Christian message is wrapped around it, we got to look at God's word. And by the way you should be listening in on what I say or what other pastors are saying that are speaking into your life to go, you know what, I like him, I like that person, but I want to make sure that they're telling me truth about God's word. That's why there was this great church in, in uh, uh, the church in Berea. Paul says, man, I'm so pumped because you guys listened to me when I taught God's word as if it was from God himself, but you searched the scriptures daily to make sure that these things were true. I lied one time on stage, and it was by accident. I said that God has named every hair on your head. This is back when I first began. God bless that first congregation, right? And, and my buddy just starts laughing in the front row. And I went, okay, I might have lied about that. He knows he's numbered every hair on your head. See? But someone was a student. And some of you, he doesn't have to count that far, Right? With the numbers of hairs on heads, except for Brian Hill. What the heck? He just, like God said, let's give him more. Let's give him more. Let's make, let's make him a lion. But you've always got to be vigilant. That church had that opportunity in those beginning stages when compromise started creeping in. What was the deeds of the Nicolaitans in the church of Ephesus became doctrine and teaching that means that they had fully embraced it in their messages that they were proclaiming. You got to be vigilant. You got to stick with the word of God. Stick with the Bible. It's the authority on life and how you and I are called to live it. And when the church loses that influence of scripture and 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 like Ephesus lost that genuine first love for God, the light in the community begins to be diminished. And our real effectiveness in the Fresno Clovis community is empty when we allow compromise and stop loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The most dangerous thing for the church is when Christians are no longer distinguishable from a non-believer. A lot of you have friends that you would love to invite to RVC. By the way, that's why those um, little... Uh, you know, invite cards that are on your seat so you can invite someone to join you. And you might run across someone saying like, oh my gosh, man, I have non-Christian friends that are actually, you know, more moral and better and, you know, don't talk behind people's back and, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, the good news is God's not, you know, uh, you don't have to accept a Christian into your heart. You re- receive Christ in your heart, right? Who's perfect. But the problem is, is that they actually can look at the church and say, I don't see any difference. Sam and I, back when we were uh, youth pastors in Laguna Beach, and uh, uh, we went to this little tiny hole-in-the-wall gym on PCH, Coast Highway. It faced the highway. It wasn't like we're looking out of the ocean, like, oh, I can work out for hours. It was like this little hole-in-the-wall gym. But there was a guy that worked in that gym who was kind of friendly with some of our, like, you know, kind of like young adult crowd, and he hung out with that young adult crowd and saw them partying harder than all his buddies that were all non-christians we're trying to share the gospel with him and he had a statement to actually a a girl that tam was mentoring at the time who was in that same sort of like age bracket and uh and it was that a non-christian trainer at this gym said if you're gonna do it just go all in speaking of the christian life and i just went like man hold up hallelujah do you want to take the microphone Isn't that crazy? And he was referring to a group of people that were fully immersed in our church in Laguna Beach. That's sad. And and what I want you and I to deal with today is not, oh yeah, you know who should be here right now? You know what I mean? You all have friends right now that went through your head saying, you know who needs to hear this? Well, you should see their Instagram. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no. He or she who has an ear... You hear what the Spirit is saying to you as a believer. You start dealing with you first. I need to deal with me first. In what ways can we allow compromise into our lives or even in this congregation? It's a bad mix. We try to fit into this world and continue that walk with God. James tells us this. Listen to what James says. Uh, the book, of, you don't. Know, um, when we get to heaven, if you're having a, a, a bad day, I don't think you ever have a bad day in heaven, but let's just, like, pretend that that might happen. Don't go talk to James, you know what I mean? James is going to be like, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you're having a bad day? It's heaven. And then you're going to be like, you know what? Good point, James. You have a friend like that? It's like, they're just not really tender with you, you know what I mean? James didn't, wasn't very tender with the church he was writing to. Here's what he says in James 4.4. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What a great way to start off his Bible study with that congregation, right? When he says that you and I, when we try to be friends of the world, we're no longer a friend of God, he's not referring to God's response to us. He's referring to your response to God, my response to God. When you begin to infuse your life with the world, it's you're the one who's backing away. It's you're the one who's pulling away from God. God's constantly pursuing you and calling you and calling me into this intimate relationship with him. But it's we begin to put our affections to the things of this life and the things of this world. And that's when it starts to happen for us. We allow this world, the view of sin, to infiltrate our lives. It will cause us to alienate ourselves from God. We see that happen. There's a guy named Demas in the New Testament. We read about him in three places. Demas was a fellow soldier with the Apostle Paul. He was a proclaimer of the gospel. He lived in a a life that pointed people to Jesus Christ. But Demas, in Paul's last written letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, we see that Demas greets Christians that Paul's writing to in two occasions in the New Testament. But we see in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul says this about Demas, Demas has forsaken me. Translation, forsaken his call, having loved this present world. You and I would have looked at Demas and said, okay, his buddy, yeah, he, he might not last. And that person over there, they may cave in to the pressures of this life. But Demas, Demas is a man of God. Demas is solid. Have you heard him preach? Have you heard him share God's word? Have you seen the way he lives his life? Have you seen him stiff arm the temptations of this life and live his life for Christ? And Demas, it says, having forsaken Paul because of his love for this world. Here John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, he says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. Literally, it means in the original language, stop loving this world is what John said. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. How does that happen for us? It's a little compromise in our lives. Wanting to serve God, have favor in our lives, but allowing this world into our lives... And that toleration of sin, attitudes of the world, what we value, material over spiritual things, hatred towards another person created in the very image of God, whether they believe in him or not, greed, that lifestyle of this world, as he mentions to the church of Pergamum, you know, the sexual sins that were prominent in their life. We're not to be sin sniffers here today. We're to look within our own hearts. We're to say, like David, Lord, search my own heart and know my heart. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And then we do what Jesus says next to do. First, he gives his his, uh, assessment of the church. Here's number two. Jesus' admonition to the church. He says to change the way you are living. Repent. That's what repentance means. It means to change direction. Change your mind about this situation. This is part of the Christian life as God reveals areas of our lives that don't honor him. We choose to say, God, I want to turn my mind away from the way I was thinking. I want to go in the direction that you're calling me to go in. The church in Corinth was on the same path that Pergamum was dealing with. Here's what Paul tells them. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Do not team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a part of with wickedness? He wasn't saying, hey, you know, if, if the coach puts you in and you, you're, you know, you're left wing and they're a you know, right wing in soccer. It's the only sport I actually knew and played. And uh, saying like, ah, coach, I don't know about that, you know. That person doesn't go to church and they don't love God, and so I don't think I could pass it to them. He's talking about fusing your lives where you begin to take on a lifestyle that they're taking on. This would include marriage, by the way. That's just a little aside for us. That's why God calls you and I to marry within the faith. You marry someone who's a believer. You You don't missionary date. Like I've never, well, I've seen it happen a few times, but... It's just, you know, for every thousand, you know, people that have tried to, you know, convert, oh, I'm really going to bring them to the Lord. There's like, it's like, you know, your chances are pretty slim. He says, how can righteousness be partnered with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? Because, again, they were actually worshiping God other false gods. In Corinth, believers were. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, now he quotes quotes an Old Testament prophet, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers, separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Do not touch their filthy things and I will welcome you and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then in chapter 7, Paul says, let's now interpret it for us. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves or separate ourselves from anything and everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. Remove everything that dishonors the Lord from your life, essentially, is what he says. It's not something that you do when you come to Jesus. Yes, we repent, but it's an ongoing work. Repentance puts us back on track with God. This morning as his spirit, he who has an ear, she who has an ear, listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches, to the believers. When God speaks to your heart, repentance means not feeling remorse. It actually means like making a willful decision. This is what I'm doing. This is dishonoring God. I'm going to turn back and I'm going to head in the direction of God. Pergamum, Corinth, the church in the 21st century, Sometimes it looks more like the world than it does the Christian community. And when Jesus calls it out, his word speaks to us, we choose to repent. I'm so grateful that this gift of repentance is given to us as believers because grace and forgiveness always meets us when we say, God, you know what? I've been been getting squirrely, haven't I? And he's like, I would have used a different word, but yeah, I'll accept that. Lord, I want to repent. This attitude that I've had, This animosity that I've had, this this, uh, indifference to human beings that I've had, I want to repent. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He says, and if you don't, judgment's coming. Not condemnation, but judgment. Peter talks about that. He says that judgment will begin with the household of God. God loves us enough to bring his sword and his word. And then he says the promise to overcomers. I love this. Spiritual nutrition a new identity and true intimacy he says you get the you get the right to partake of the hidden manna manna in the old testament was this this like um, almost like a vanilla wafer i'd like to think you know what i mean this came down for the children of israel every morning they'd go collect vanilla wafers and 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 uh, the idea that they would go to these by the way the church in pergamon would go to these feasts and they would actually partake of food that was sacrificed to other idols And here he says, I'm going to give you a hidden meal that's really going to nourish your soul. That's really going to be something that you and I would, would satisfy the craving. The interesting idea, right? We choose unhealthy junk food of this world. We give in to compromise. It will never satisfy. But Jesus gives us real spiritual nutrition that truly satisfies our soul. And he's the source of it. He says, I'm going to give you a stone, a white stone. That represents a new identity now. These white stones were given to a victor in a, a, a battle or some sort of a, you know, Olympic pre-Olympic games. They would get a white stone. A person who was acquitted at a, um, uh, in, in the court of law would get a white stone. Um, you know, A victor or someone who was declared healthy would get a white stone. These are all the images that we find during this time period of history. This new identity is you belong to me. You're separate from this world. He who repents and says, God, I'm all in with you. You're married to the Lord. We belong to him. It was this idea that, man, you have a new identity. And then you get this new name, this name inscribed on that. You know that the, the, the overcomer in heaven, you know, your mom might have called, gave you a name, you know, but you have a name that only the Lord knows about that he's given to the overcomer. We, we, use, we, have, we have pet names for people that we love, right? It speaks of intimacy. We have pet names for people we don't like too, right? <laughs> but the loved ones that you have, you know what I mean? You have these pet names. Tam and I have, you know, I have a pet name for Tammy. It pops up on my phone, so if you and I are close enough, you'll see it when she calls. I'm not going to say it right now. You guys want to know what it is? Now? <laughs> Sugar lips. There you go. Sorry, babe. Sorry about that. What else am I going to say when I kiss you? It's just like... just pop rocks and sugar look at this i'm not in trouble by the way either i'm not like in trouble with her i didn't say that to go like oh he must have been in the doghouse and now he has a microphone gee i wish i had a microphone i could get out of the doghouse too i'm not in the doghouse this intimate relationship that we have when we refuse to compromise is this faithfulness to the lord being vigilant about compromise it allows for us to grow in our knowledge of him and closeness with jesus comes as he, he, he tells us that they're going to have that pet name, that, that new name inscribed on that white stone. Guys, I imagine when they got this letter that they were like, sometimes we are in church and the Spirit speaks to us. and We say, wait, have I slipped that far? I'd imagine when they heard that, they're like, no, 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 no. This is, this, is, this is for the church of Thyatira down the street, right? You meant this letter for Clovis Hills, Right? And it says, no, 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 no. It says, Pergamum, there are some among you have, who have allowed the teaching of Balaam to enter in your life. There are some among us who have allowed the teaching of the Nicolaitans, this fusion of worldliness and Christianity. Where is God speaking into your heart today? In what way has your life become infiltrated by this world, mixed in a bad way? How does he want you to respond? Be faithful, right? It will be rewarded. Be strong. Swim against the current. I know it's difficult. We have our young people in here today. I can't imagine going back into junior high or high school or to sixth grade and try to stand for Jesus Christ. We pray for you. But it can be done by you saying, God, I need your Holy Spirit to give me strength to stand up in the midst of a culture that is going a million miles in the other direction. We pray for our young people. Be strong. Swim against the current, the culture, uh, the currents of this culture and be vigilant. Remove anything that hinders you from growing closer to Jesus Christ and repent. Change the way that you're living. I don't know what God has for you today, but, you know, we always close our our service off with some worship because, and and we have prayer available, by the way, at every service because we want an opportunity for you to do some business with God. What is the Lord speaking to your heart today? You know, the greatest gift that you and I could ever be given is a relationship with God, to have intimate relationship with Him, to know Him, to be right with Him, to have the promise of eternal life. You see, that's why he was reminding those guys, be faithful, because man, you're gonna partake of the hidden manna one day in the kingdom of God. You're gonna have that stone that declares that you've been acquitted, you belong to me, and you're gonna have that new name that you'll hear, I imagine, when you and I step into God's kingdom. Something that he wants for every single one of us. So do some business with God. Maybe you've joined us today and you actually don't know Jesus personally. You don't have a relationship with him. You don't have the assurance that your sins are forgiven. If you were to die this week, you're not certain that you would spend eternity with God in heaven. Because you're thinking, boy, how does that happen? Well, there's nothing you could do that could ever earn God's favor or salvation. There's nothing that you could do to actually cancel out your debt of sin, nor can I. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that whoever would believe, put their faith in him, would not perish, spend eternity outside of God's kingdom, but they would have eternal life. It's simple faith in Jesus Christ. What do you do? You recognize you've sinned. God, I'm a sinner. You believe that Jesus